Yo, I'm hot. If that heater's on, I'm going to hurt somebody. It's not on, right? Because it is sweltering in here. And I know if we turn the air on, then in like three minutes, the ladies, it's freezing. So we'll just let it go and it's just going to be warm. How's it going? I was pulling for you, Rich. It's their fault. Yeah. Well, in honor of the Lord Jesus, um, we've decided, I've decided, somebody decided, I guess the elders and I did, to do a three-week series all about him. And, and, and that sounds silly because we talk about him every week, but we wanted for Christmas to, uh, to really just take the whole month of December and, and talk about Jesus each weekend and maybe different aspects of, of who he is and his ministry and those things. And so we have a three-week series that we begin today uh, that's really all about Jesus for Christmas. Makes sense, right? Um, we're going to be talking about today, the arrival of Jesus. Next week, we'll talk about the work of Jesus. And then on the 21st, we'll talk about the leading of Jesus. And I can't think of a better subject because it's basically the turn of the year and we want to be led by Jesus in the year to come. And so um, it's going to be good. I'd like to uh, just give you a brief history lesson on Christmas uh, before we actually get into the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. I think it'll help to provide a bit of a framework uh, for this season and for this month and for our lives. And uh, before and shortly after the birth of Jesus, the Roman citizens or Rome as a, an empire celebrated what is known as Saturnalia. Uh, some of us might be familiar with that term. I wasn't until last week. I always thought of it as winter solstice. And Saturnalia and winter solstice are sort of the same thing. And so, you know, during the time of Jesus, shortly before and after, there was a holiday or a season that existed within the Roman Empire where people celebrated and kind of partied and, and did all of this stuff. In their system of religion, Saturn was the god of agriculture. And each year during the summer, the god Jupiter would force Saturn out of his dominant position in the heavenly realm. Now, this is according to their religion. And the days would begin to shorten. In the temple to Saturn in Rome, the feet of Saturn were then symbolically bound with chains until the Saturnalia, winter solstice, when the length of days began to increase. Saturnalia was basically a week-long celebration where people really just reveled in debauchery. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll all week. Unloosed, just crazy craziness. Vegas for the weekend, if you will. And they also exchanged gifts during this time. As the, basically this all took place as the hardness of winter began to wane and the days grew longer. So this whole Saturnalia thing kind of marked the downward spiral or downward ending of winter, if you will. And so it became this big party and celebration. Winter's kind of coming to an end. And, you know, obviously back in those days, and it even happens today, there weren't a lot of crops and agriculture happening over there in that region during this time. And so food became scarce and all of these things. And so they just kind of celebrated the waning of, of winter with Saturnalia. Saturnalia began on December 17th and ran all the way through December 25th. And the 25th, the culmination of this celebration and time of festivity sort of culminated with the, which was recognized on December 25th as the birth of their sun god, Phrygia. Isn't that interesting? And so they would all celebrate, Phrygia has come, and, 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 you know, and he's the god of the sun, or he's the sun god, and now he's going to begin to shine uh, like he did last year, and he's going to melt the snow and the ice and all these things and bring our crops back around and what have you. And so they all sort of just worshiped this god on this final day of Saturnalia. So think of Saturnalia as a Roman pagan holiday 
where there were all sorts of festivities and gift giving, but a lot of debauchery and all sorts of wacky stuff happening. Now, after Christianity was legalized and made the state religion of Rome, you might be familiar with uh, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, who did that. The Roman Catholic Church sought to bring an end to Saturnalia. The Roman Catholics of this day, that was the most powerful church or largest church at least, the most influential church at that time. There was a Roman Christian church that wasn't Catholic per se, um, but it didn't have the kind of influence that the Roman Catholic church had during this time. And the priests and monks and, and what have you thought that this holiday was terrible and it was you know, ridiculous and evil and wicked and said, we've got to just get this thing out of Rome. We've got to change things because... As an empire, as a nation, we cannot continue to revel in these sorts of things and all of that. And, you know, there was all sorts of rationale for why to do this. Now, the way that it went around this was really not cool and pretty awkward. Instead of just working to end the holiday, Saturnalia, they adopted it and tried to morph it into something else. They adopted it and basically tried to take something that was evil and, and get the church's hands on it and work it over and make it into something that honored God. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing. We, we call that redeeming. You're trying to redeem something of the world, and I get that. But the problem with that whole strategy was for a couple of hundred years, Saturnalia and this new thing, it was the same thing. And now you have the church doing all of this stuff. The church now, you know, churchmen were now engaging in these frivolous, sinful, wicked activities and these things. And so it was a really sort of awkward mess. But I think the ideology behind it was good. Let's take something that the world does and let's redeem it and honor Christ with it. And so that was kind of the basic line of thinking. And the idea of it was, you know, we're not going to worship Phrygia on the 25th per se. We're going to worship Christ. Now we know that Christ was not born on December 25th. Um, but the Roman Catholic Church said, you know what, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus on that day rather than the birth of Phrygia, this weird sun god that doesn't even exist. And so that was the idea. We'll take this week of feasting and partying and celebrating and we'll focus it on Jesus. So that's not such a bad thing. They actually had a name for that week and Christmas Day, if you will. It wasn't Christmas then. It was the Feast of the Nativity is what it was actually called at first. Later, it became known as Christ Mass. Christ and then Mass, M-A-S-S. The idea that, uh, you know, they kind of had this focus on the Lord's Supper, which is something that the Catholic Church is big about. And they believe the bread and the wine become the literal body and these sorts of things. And so it kind of went from being the Feast of the Nativity to being known as Christ Mass. And later, obviously, it began to be called Christmas now, for Christians, <laughs> Christmas is about Jesus. It should be. Um, there are a lot of people in the church that do not, and I will say in the church, there are some other cults out there that do not recognize Christmas, like Jehovah's Witnesses and these sorts of things. I, I'm not sure what their rationale for why they do that is, but I, there's Christians out there too that just do, they love Jesus, but they just do not do Christmas because of its original roots. And to be honest with you, when you kind of go back and study history and look at what was involved in that, I, I kind of sympathize with, with them a little bit. You know, I used to think, well, you don't celebrate Christmas, there's something dreadfully wrong with you. But if you know the origin of it, where it began and started, then you might have a little bit more sympathy for people who just flat out reject it. Now, I am not in that camp. I'm in the camp that says, let's make it all about Jesus. That's what the Roman Catholic Church was attempting to do back then. That's what we should be doing today. So, when we say Jesus is the reason for the season, we mean that. Christmas to Christians should be about Jesus. He is the reason for the season. He is why we celebrate Christmas. If we as the church or Christians remove Jesus from Christmas, we are left with Saturnalia or a form of it. Chances are most Americans have no idea what Saturnalia means, but guess what? They're knee deep in it. They're, they're celebrating something during Christmas. And it ain't Jesus. 
And that's why if we're going to be Christians, if we're the church, we're not to do what the world does with this holiday, which we so often find ourselves doing with overspending and debt and trying to earn people's favor and forgiveness and these things by showering them with gifts, spending, getting, and just, it just, we get out of control ourselves. At this point, we are not worshiping Jesus. Christmas is not about Jesus. If all you've got for this Christmas is your eyes fixed on some particular thing that you want, you're worshiping the God of Saturn or Phrygia. You don't get it. This time of year is about Jesus for the church. That was the original mindset for it back when we took it from the pagan culture. If we take Jesus out of Christmas, if there's imbalance, if we don't focus on him, we really are left with nothing more than a Roman pagan holiday. And, and you know it and I know it that that is the position of the people in our culture. You know, and I, I see these, you know, these demonstrations and these things happening on the news and Fox News. I like Fox News, but they're really bad about this. They're always talking about the war on Christmas and, and all of this stuff. Why would we think that the world should honor Christ in Christmas? They hate him. We spend all our time battling for a little bit of beach and all of this, a little bit of ground to get Christ into it in a world that hates Christ and should hate you. Right? Well, our pastor, he doesn't want to defend Christmas. You know what? Let me tell you something, guys. The first place Christmas needs to be defended is in your own home. Watch your spending. Watch how you respond during this season. Watch your appetite for stuff. Because you got all these Christians out there battling over Christmas, and we got to keep Christ in Christmas in a world that hates Christ. And, and meanwhile, they're not managing their own affairs. And they're getting themselves in debt, spoiling their kids and trying to earn the favor and forgiveness of people by giving them gifts. And it's it just, it's lunacy. And then yet we're ticked off because people won't say Merry Christmas. Happy holiday. Oh, can you believe they said that? I'm filing a suit. We live in a fallen world that does not love Jesus. It killed him. And so guess what? You honor Christ. And those who profess Christ, you hold them accountable for that and you help them in love and with the truth to honor Christ. You're the one that's responsible to honor Christ during this season. Don't hold those out there who hate Jesus accountable for that. They don't know any better. The high majority of people in our culture are about Saturnalia. And the interesting thing about that is, is that that's not how our nation started. The pilgrims didn't come over here and say, hey, Saturnalia, they brought us Christmas. They brought us Christ. Our early forefathers brought us Christmas. They brought us Christ. And so we don't have any ties to the ancient Romans here. And yet somehow in this fallen land of ours, we have regressed, digressed, and adopted something other than. We have taken Christmas, how it began here, our origin of it, and morphed it back into what it was long ago. But I say as Christians, we ought not to bow down to and, and dance around the altar of Saturn as the ancient Romans did. We shouldn't follow along with the culture and bow down to the gods of self and consumerism. You know, amongst the mixed masses of our land, Christmas is not about Jesus. He is not the reason for the season. In fact, in this relativistic society where anything goes and whatever matters, you know, to you is what matters to everyone else. I mean, it's what's important to you that, that's prevailing over everything else. Christmas has become subjective. Make it what you want. People make Christmas about whatever they want. They define it according to their own desires and preferences. They say in Saturnalian style, Christmas might be about Jesus to you, bub, but to me it's about friends and family and presents and parties and eggnog and brandy and ugly sweaters and time off from work and woohoo. Well, that's not what it's to be about to us Christians. If we 
are not going to be about Jesus as a church for Christmas, then we ought not celebrate Christmas. We ought not. Now, my prayer is that through this series, we would grow in our knowledge of Jesus, in our love of Jesus, in our faith in Jesus, in our thanks to Jesus, and in our commitment to Jesus, especially during the Christmas season where the devil tempts us to embrace Saturnalia and worship false gods with everyone else. Are you already feeling that pressure to spend tons of money and to go out and beyond, you know, what you would normally do or what you know you shouldn't do? Guess what? That's the devil trying to get you to make this time of year about the dang sun god, which he orchestrated and fabricated. And so what better way to combat that than to focus on Jesus this month? Let me uh, read our main text. We're going to be in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And I'm going to read it as soon as you're there. When you're there, say, I'm there. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. You there? It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And it says in 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, you've already stoked the flames of our attention here shocked us a bit with this whole idea of Christmas and its history. Lord, I pray that you would just, that you would imprint the truth about Jesus, really about Christmas, but about Jesus into our hearts and minds during this time of study as we expound upon, as we um, take this text and study it. Open our minds and hearts to the truth. Speak to us now. Do not, Father, at all leave us where we were before we heard this sermon, before we entered these doors. Transform us and make us more like Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, do I have your attention? You ready? Still pretty hot. It's so bad that my glasses are sweating and and they want to slide off my face. I hope that doesn't happen. Now, from this particular passage, I love this passage. Now, you know, every year around Christmas time, I say to myself, what on earth could I possibly preach about? What text should I use? It's not that there isn't plenty of resource, but as a preaching pastor, it's like, hmm, where do you go with this stuff? And so you pray and hope that God points you to something. But anyways, I love this text. And from this particular passage, I'm going to give you four things about the arrival of Jesus. Four things, very simple. Four things about the arrival of Jesus. I will identify and define each one as we move along. Are you good? I hope you're ready to take some notes. I'm going to start with number one. The arrival of Jesus was a controversial arrival. The arrival of Jesus was a controversial arrival. Look with me at verses 18 through 19. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Of course, we just read this, but it's okay. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, uh, looking at 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
There are really two things in those two verses that make the arrival of Jesus controversial. First, Mary was with child, we call that pregnant, out of wedlock. Now I do realize that that's not a very controversial thing in our culture anymore. But back in the 50s, you were darn near stoned to death for doing something like that. And back in these days, you were stoned to death for doing something like that. The text says that she was betrothed to Joseph and was with child during that time. In Judaism, betrothment is the first stage of the marital process. They called it ketubah. K-E-T-U-B-B-A-H. They called it katuba, which basically means formal courtship. This period is initiated when a promise of marriage and money is made by the groom to the bride's father and a contract, the ketubah contract, is drawn up. And the ketubah contract has all of the stipulations of the marriage. What it's going to be like, what she's going to do, what he's going to do, and all of these things. In some ways, uh, people would compare it to a prenuptial. Really didn't have anything to do with a prenup because that's all about don't take my stuff if this doesn't work out. Maybe there were some aspects of it then. I don't know, but you might think of it like that. Now, the ketubah period, this contracted period, could last, according to the law, could last up to seven years. And so you could have seven years of ketubah, or serious courtship. During the ketubah, the bride is considered the wife of the groom, but sexual intercourse is forbidden. So you have like marital rights and the culture and the people around you and your own family and you yourself are supposed to see this as being married to her, but there's no sex and you cannot live with her yet. Those things are off Limits. Now, if the groom discovered, like during this ketubah period, that his bride had lied about her virginity, he could dissolve the ketubah contract quietly through a certificate of divorce. Like if she lied and said, hey, you know, I'm this, and then found out you're not that, I don't know how you find that out, maybe you hear it, but you find out and then you say, ha ha, you lied to me, this ain't going down. Back then, marrying a virgin in this culture was massive, hugely significant and important. Now, if the bride was caught, and and, and I I hate this aspect of Jewish law then. It all has to do with the bride. It's like the guy can do whatever he wants, but the wife, let me tell you, wife. Some of you guys in here are like, I love it. I'm going to convert to Judaism immediately. Go ahead. Don't be upset when my foot helps you out the door. Literally, it's like all the rights went to the men and the women got the shaft on everything. And now here's the deal. If she was found to not be a virgin, it was broken, she was disgraced, would live in shame the rest of her life. If she was caught, and they always say caught, and I don't catch how you catch somebody, but if you caught her in the act of adultery with another man, she would be killed. I'd just kill her. I'd just take her outside the city gates and throw rocks at her until she wasn't breathing anymore. I don't know what happened to the guy if he did these things. Don't do that again, (laughs) you know. Oh, okay. He should be killed too. Now, the second stage of the marital process is called Koopa, not Cooper. Spencer's like, hey, they named it after me. That's awkward. C-H-U-P-P-A-H, it's pronounced Koopa. After the groom raised the funds to pay the bride's father, I mean, look at this. She's costing him money already. (laughs) He'll spend the rest of his life paying for her. Literally, he had to raise up money to give to the father. In a way, he was purchasing the daughter from him. It's part of their culture. It's part of their tradition. And so once he had the money together, hopefully he got her during a super sale, because it might take seven years to come up with, you know, 200K, I don't know. It could take a guy a long time to come up with this money. But once he had the money, he would contact the father, you know, make it rain on him. You know? Father would be like, sweet. And then they would make arrangements to consummate the marriage. 
The groom would then go to the bride's home where she and her maidens were waiting. After he arrived, and uh, after he arrived to this place, he and his bride would enter the kupa room and consummate their marriage. It's really interesting. Then, marriages weren't sealed with a ring. They were sealed with... Yes. Them, I've already said it like three times in the sermon. Now all of a sudden I'm going to be proper. That's basically what sealed the marriage was them coming together and doing what only husbands and brides ought to do. Young men and ladies if you're in here. And after they consummated, the groom would present the virginity cloth to the chosen witnesses who would examine it and save it for the bride. This is all significant, massive stuff. Now, the third and final stage of the marital process would begin when everyone present, after the rag was handed over, the cloth was handed over, after it was consummated, the money was paid, all that stuff, after that ketubah period, the third thing would initiate right after all of that, and they would form like a processional, a nice single file line, and they would all head over to the groom's house and party for like seven days. I mean, we, you know, we go to a wedding and, you know, one night, these people did it for seven days. I don't know how you're still going. It's good wine. You know, seven days. They partied and, and feasted and, and drank good wine and all that. You remember the story of Jesus' first miracle where he turned the water to wine? No wonder they ran out of wine. They were doing it for seven days. Jesus was there with them for seven days. Man, how much more wine do I need to make for these people? I need to turn from this alcoholism to me. And so once that, it was consummated, it was a done deal, and then they would transition over to his house for what's called the wedding feast. And there is an awful lot of terminology in the scripture that describes the relationship between the church, which is the bride of Christ, and Christ. He's coming back for the wedding feast. And so it's kind of interesting language, it's interchangeable. Now, because of the tradition. And one of the things that we notice about our text, one, chapter one, verses 15, 16, all the way through 25, is that that's not how this played out with Mary. Because Mary didn't, in the eyes of those around, follow the tradition in the right sense, out of order here. You're pregnant before you've consummated, which means in their minds, you've been with somebody else Right off the get-go, she's despised, Joseph is despised, Jesus is despised. In fact, some of these religious types during Jesus' ministry rejected him just based on that fact that tradition was broken and she was thought of as a harlot and these sorts of things. Terrible. To the early Jews and people in that community, the nativity story, which is essentially what we're reading, part of it at least, was based on fornication, adultery, and cover-ups. You see, it was a controversial arrival. She was pregnant out of wedlock and these sorts of things. People then said it had nothing to do with God because God would never violate his own law by committing adultery with a betrothed woman, let alone be with a betrothed woman. God does not come out of heaven and do these sorts of things. That's Greek religion. That's Roman religion. And if you know anything about Greek or Greco-Roman religion, the gods were always coming down and consummating with people and you had demigods and all this weird stuff. And so they just paralleled what's happening with Mary here with all of that Greek mythology. Now what they fail to understand is that God did not, in the Holy Spirit, did not engage Mary this way. He did not violate her body. He did not take away her virginity. He did not breach the ketubah between Joseph and Mary and Mary's dad. Now there are people today who reject Jesus because of this controversy. Maybe we have folks in our community or culture that are, I mean, I know the Jews reject them, but maybe we have others that are just pharisaical and, and they just can't get their, well, they, first of all, they don't understand the truth of it, but they just say there's no way that would ever happen and look at her and look at what she did and something had to play out there and there's just no way that I could ever, you know, move towards Jesus because of this whole situation. And the bottom line is a controversial arrival. 
Mary's out-of-wedlock pregnancy shuts people down. Now, the second controversial thing in this verse is that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit. Huh? You know, in the Jewish mind, the Holy Spirit was the teacher. You're trying to tell me that the schoolmaster came out of heaven to do this with a mere mortal woman? And they would shoot this down immediately. Are you crazy? That's blasphemous. Who said that? Fred over there, get him. We're going to kill him. This is how they responded to this. Being pregnant out of wedlock was one thing in that day, a terrible thing, a punishable thing. But having God as the father of the baby through the Holy Spirit took on this whole controversy and, and nastiness to a whole new level in the minds and hearts of these folks around here. It was unfathomable to Jews of that day, blasphemous. And there are people today who reject Jesus because of this controversy. They say, sounds more like science fiction to me. A God coming down out of heaven and, and being with a woman. And first of all, he didn't be with a woman like you think. We don't call what took place here science fiction. We call it supernatural. And the truth is, what took place 2,000 years ago was nothing like what we see today. There are no parallels between Mary, the Holy Spirit, and the fornicatory and adulterous celebrities, politicians, and people of our day. You cannot make a parallel between what happened with the Holy Spirit and Mary and, and Hollywoodites. And everyone's messing around with everyone and committing adultery and cheating on everyone and all of that. See, our minds, that's what we're familiar with. That's what we understand here. And so we immediately parallel what's happening in Hollywood with what happened 2,000 years ago. And they were nothing alike. None of it played out like that. What took place 2,000 years ago was not sinful, was not sexual, was not adulterous. It was not a scene out of one of today's Hollywood movies. It was by God's design, and God is holy and perfect. He cannot sin or lie, and God never violates his own precepts and laws. To do so would be to violate himself. As challenging as the virgin birth may be for us to comprehend, it is no less real. It is no less true, and it is no less holy, because we can't get our minds around how it all works. We tend to dismiss things, doubt things, reject things, argue against them. But just because we can't get our finite minds around the full workings of it and God's plan and how he, he did it and all these things doesn't mean that it's not real or true. And as controversial as the virgin birth may seem to us, it is no less real. Now a quick look at verse 19 shows that even the bridegroom, Joseph, struggled with the situation. <laughs> Did he not? And he was a godly man. At first, Joseph thought Mary had been unfaithful to him. He was probably heartbroken. Wouldn't you have been? He was probably embarrassed. Look at what my betrothed has done. Oh, man. This is going to bring shame on her and on me forever. He was probably ashamed. But he was an honorable man and he planned to quietly break the ketubah with her and her father. But before he could follow through with his plan, an angel appeared to him and his attitude changed. Because of the illuminating presence and power of the Holy Spirit, Christians can accept the virgin birth by faith. And that's essentially what's going to happen with him as we'll continue to read and see. Now, the second thing from this passage about the arrival of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus was a divine arrival. It was a divine arrival. Look with me at verse 20. But as he, speaking of Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is echoed in verse 18, if we, as we have already seen. It is, again, echoed in 23. What we're looking at here is what we refer to as incarnation. When God came to earth and became a man, that's what incarnation means. The word incarnation does not occur in 
the Bible. It is derived from the Latin in and caro, which means flesh, meaning clothed in flesh, the act of assuming flesh. Its only use in theology is in reference to that gracious, voluntary act, voluntary act of the Son of God in which he assumed a human body. In Christian doctrine, the incarnation briefly stated is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man. It is one of the greatest events to occur in the history of the universe. It is literally without parallel. Now, there are a multitude of other passages that mention and describe the incarnation. And that connection here is connected to the child coming from the Holy Spirit, who is God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16a, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, speaking of Jesus or God, was manifested in the flesh. He's speaking of incarnation, how God came down from heaven and took on flesh through that work of the Holy Spirit. Paul gave another significant passage on the incarnation in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Incarnation, God becoming a man, God being sent forth. God sending forth his son presupposes that God had a son. Christ was the son in his eternal relationship with the father, not because he was born of Mary, since, since as a son shares the nature of his father, so our Lord shares the Godhead co-equally with his father. Yes, God sent forth his son from his throne on high, from his position of heavenly glory. God did not send one forth who, in his birth, became his son. He sent one who, through all eternity, was his son. Always had existed. Centuries before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote of him, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Isaiah 9, 6. The son was given in eternity past before we knew him. His human birth was merely the method of coming to us. Does it make sense? Jesus existed, and through the power and supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, came and became a man and was basically essentially put in the womb of Mary. A son was given. A son existed forever and was given and came through Mary. And so we can see that this was a divine arrival. God came, the incarnation. God came to earth. Lastly, Paul recorded the following statements in Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, right, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Before his incarnation, Jesus Christ was in the form of God, Philippians 2, 6. From the beginning, he had the nature of God. He existed as God. And that essential deity, which he once was, could never cease to be. If he seems divine, it's only because he is divine. He is God. So what we have in the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of God. The arrival of the divine. God literally came to us. And as we saw in a text just a moment ago, at the appointed time, at the right time, at the time that God had fixed, which just happened to be a time where men were doing all they could to come to God through religion and good works, but to no avail. And this has been playing out every day in our culture and in after that time as well, but that sort of reaching out to God through religion sort of culminated at that time, I can't think of people that have ever been as religious as probably the Pharisees, which were around in these days. Some would say these radical Muslims today outdo them. I don't know. I don't think they, I, in fact, I know they don't follow the, the Sharia law to the, you know, every jot, t, iota. Like the Pharisees followed everything. If a little sprig of mint popped up on their sidewalk, they plucked it off and plucked off 10% of it and put it in the offering basket. I think you should start doing that here. 
I think it's just like growing ivy out of it now, you know? No, at the fullness of time, God sent his son, the incarnation, and his son had existed for all eternity. The fact is, men then and men today never make it to God, no matter what they do or did then. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to the world. You know, this is part of the message of Christmas. (laughs) God became a man, and there's reasons why. We'll get to them, but that's part of the message of Christmas. God, we, we could never, Christmas, part of the Christmas message for you as you interact with people, we could never get to God through religion or good works. God had to come to us. That's part of the Christmas message. That little baby in that manger, that's God come to us. Third thing, the the arrival of Jesus was a purposeful arrival. Look with me at verse 21. She, speaking of Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's right there in the text. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That was the purpose of his arrival. This too is part of the message of Christmas, right? God came to earth, took on the form of a man. There's the incarnation. There's the divine appearance. Yeah, it was controversial. But he came, and he came for a purpose, and that's to save his people from their sins. That's part of the Christmas message. A lot of people have that messed up today. Jesus came for a whole bunch of reasons. He came to heal that toe fungus you have. He came to bring joy into the world and peace into the world. It's funny because Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. But somehow we, we, you know, we, we take away why he came and we, we redefine it with something that feels better and sounds nicer. He came to bring joy and peace. He came to bring purpose. I remember seeing a huge banner years ago when we were headed out to, my wife and I and our family were headed out to some relatives that lived out there by Don Pedro. They moved. But there was a big banner in front of a church that said, he came to die so you could have peace. And I wanted to go tear it off. That's not why he came to die. He did not come to die so you could have peace. He came to die so that you could be saved. And then you have peace. And then you have joy. And then you have purpose. We got to get this right, people, because we've been, we've been marketing a Jesus that does not exist because he did not come for those other reasons alone. He came to save his people. Amen? So you think about that as you spend money, as you shop, as you celebrate this month. Remember why Jesus came, why he arrived to begin with, to save you from your sin. And don't think to yourself, well, he saved me from my sin, so I'll just sin with my money this month. Oh, you're one of those free gracer types. I got news for you. You ain't a Christian if that's the way you think. Don't you be thinking that the grace is a license for your sin. Uh Uh-uh. That's a slap in the face of God. Now, this truth of his purposeful arrival is, is affirmed by a multitude of verses. One of my favorites is 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is how Paul begins to say this. You better believe this one is what he's saying. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Why did Jesus arrive? What was his purpose? To save sinners. In our text, Matthew 1 to save his people. Now I'd like to tie his incarnation to his purpose because this is absolutely key. Why was it necessary for Jesus, the savior of the world, the savior of his people, the savior of sinners, however you want to put it, to be both God and man? This question has baffled people for centuries, and I'm not sure why. The answer is fairly simple. I'll give you two reasons. There are more, but I think these two are essential. A, the Savior, Jesus, had to be a man because sin and death came to all men through a man, Adam. In God's economy of things, the only one who could redeem man 
was another man because man screwed it up to begin with. Paul explained this in several passages. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die. All die spiritually and physically. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, the work of Adam brought sin and death. The work of Christ brings life and eternal life. New birth and eternal life, we might say. It was lost through a man. It has to be redeemed through a man because Jesus is man. Romans 5, 18 to 19. One trespass led to the condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What's he talking about here? He's talking about what Adam brought and what Jesus brought. What Adam screwed up and what Jesus redeems. And so it was completely necessary that the Savior of the world be a man because all was lost through a man. And this is why you'll see in Scripture references to Adam. They call Adam, Adam, and they they basically call him Adam, but they call Jesus the second Adam. The other Adam who came and didn't foul up the thing. The one who's come back to do what the first Adam did not do. Uh, B, the Savior had to be God because natural men are sinners who are incapable of perfectly obeying God's commandments. No man could ever obey all of God's law perfectly 100% of the time, 24-7-365. It is physically, emotionally, spiritually, absolutely, infinitely impossible. We are sinners. We are plagued by sin. It corrupts every aspect of who we are. It corrupts our bodies, minds, wills, souls, and spirit. In fact, the scriptures call us necros in Hebrew, dead. There's no area in a person where sin is not absent. It literally saturates every aspect and cell of who we are. We are 100% infected, 100% depraved. Even the greatest people throughout history had broken God's commands. Even the most religious people throughout history, you know, like Gandhi, all throughout history, Gandhi and these guys that we've seen broke the commandments. The Pharisees, who were the most religious people of all time, broke the commandments. Jesus pointed that out all the time. You do this, but when you do this, which is kind of a good thing, you sin over here. He was in the habit of telling them all the time, you do this, this, and this, and those things are kind of right, but you, in order to do these things, you've done this. You've abandoned and forsaken your parents. You've declared korban. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but Jesus was in the habit of pointing out, while they thought they were perfect, Jesus was pointing out, you're not, and here's where you're sinning. Most religious people of all time. The greatest people throughout history had broken God's commandments. The scriptures declare repeatedly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. All doesn't mean a little group. All means all. It's pass in Greek. It can mean every single person who has ever lived, will live today, or lives today and will live in the future. And it can also mean a select group. And there it means every person. Well, that's... Every person it means, and I don't think that's Greek right there. That's probably quoted from the Old Testament. But in any case, it's interchangeable with what it is over in the New Testament. The fact is all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if God left us to ourselves, if he did not come 2,000 years ago in the incarnation, we would never be able to earn the kind of righteousness that he requires, nor would we be able to offer the kind of everlasting, one-time sacrifice that he desired. Never. The only option was for God to intervene, and he did so by sending his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to take on flesh and to do what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus came to live perfectly. He obeyed God's law perfectly, not one breach. He came to die in our place, to take our sin upon his body, to pay our sin debt, and to rise in victory over death, hell, and Satan. That's what he came to do. 
Jesus fulfilled all that was required and still is. He, he literally, as a man, he came, and as God, he came and fulfilled all that was required. He did everything that God commanded him to do to make restitution for us, to purchase us, to buy us, to pay our sin debt. It was a purposeful arrival that only the God-man could achieve. And how him being 100% God and 100% man, he's not like 50% man and 50% God, he's 100 of each, and last time I checked, you can only have 100%, but somehow in this whole incarnation, in this hypostatic union, it works in God's mind, but in mine, mine goes... It just keeps ramming up against this brick wall of, uh, that it's just not logical, it's not rational in my mind, but that's why it's supernatural. It goes beyond our finite capabilities. And so because I can't explain it to you perfectly or understand it perfectly, I can believe it by faith. And I don't have to fart around with it and reject it and manipulate it and play with it and, and like Rob Bell does and, and, and try to cause people to go astray because he can't get his stupid mind around it and now he's got to say, well, maybe it's just not true. It is true. Just because it's something that's, I don't have transcendent might. Knowledge is not transcendent. It doesn't, it's, there's limits. God's knowledge is transcendent. His wisdom is, it just, it's just beyond all things. It transcends all things. And so in his mind, this, it, the 100%, the 100% work perfectly together. And I'm so thankful for that. I can't get my mind around it. I don't have to walk around going, it can't be true then because Phil, who's the most important person in the universe, can't get his mind around it. You know? What do you think people are doing today? I can't understand it, so it can't be true. Oh, that's because you're God. Well, I'm not God. Well, you're acting like him. Now let's briefly talk about who Jesus came to save. Our text says he came to save his people. Who are his people? Are they all people of all time? Are they every person who has ever lived, lives today and will live in the future until the end of time? Are his people the Israelites, the Jews? Is he gonna save them all? And we all know that there exists a broad road to destruction that is constantly full of people who will never be saved. We know that Gentiles and Jews die and go to hell every day. It's a tragedy. It's sad. It makes me sick. So the answer to both questions is no. It can't be all people of all time. We're not universalists at this church. We believe that he saved some. It's not all that he came to save. If he came to save all, all would get saved. His people does not mean all people, and his people does not mean Israel alone. In John 10, 27, Jesus referred to his people as his sheep. In John 10, 29, he referred to his people as those whom the Father gave him. In Mark 13, 20, Jesus referred to his people as his chosen elect. This is Jesus's, these aren't my words, these aren't John Calvin's words. These are Jesus' words. Each of these examples shows us that his people are a special and unique group of people. They actually belong to Jesus. They have always belonged to Jesus. They are his people. They are his sheep. They are a gift from the Father to the Son. They are the chosen elect. Now what did Jesus do for this group. Our text says he came to save them from their sins. And here's the beauty of this. If you believe in Jesus, your sins have been washed away and you literally belong to him. You are one of his people. You are one of his chosen elect. You are one of his sheep. You're not a worldly goat. You belong to him. Why would you not rejoice in that? What a gift of grace you've received. 
not by your merit or work or anything. The only part you played in this was sin. You believe in him. You belong to him. You are his sheep. And guess what? He is your shepherd. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. You are a gift from the Father to him. You're actually a gift. Some of you don't think, even as believers, you don't think you have any worth. You don't think you have any purpose. You don't have any hope right now. Life is turned in on you. It's trouble. You're struggling. You're wrestling. You don't think you have any value. You don't think anyone loves you. You are a gift. From the Father to the Son. You have been presented to Jesus from the Father as a gift for his work that he did here. You must mean a lot to God if you're a gift that he gives to Jesus. Your value, man, your stocks just went through the roof. And some of you are just, oh, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. You are God's chosen and elect. You shouldn't say and live like this is such a bummer life. You ought to have on your lips perpetual hallelujahs. He saved me and presented me to the Son as a gift. I'm chosen. I'm elect. I know this because I have the presence of the Holy Spirit. I've repented of my sin. I've turned from my sin. I'm becoming a different person. I know I'm saved. I know that Christ is in me. And you're a gift and you were given. You will be presented actually to Jesus in the future when he returns. I mean, what a spectacular thing that's been done for you. Don't you degrade yourself. Don't you undermine how God sees you. Fourth, the arrival of Jesus was a prophesied arrival. Look with me at verses 22 to 23. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Parentheses, which means God with us. There's another reference to the incarnation. God came to us. But this was foretold. What we see here is that the arrival of Jesus had been foretold in the Old Testament several places. Matthew quoted Isaiah 7:14. Matthew was a master of the Old Testament, even as a shady tax collector. He really knew the Old Testament. He quoted Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which basically means God with us. Now, there are also Old Testament passages that provide incredible, there are more that provide detail or at least talk about Jesus coming in this way. It was prophesied, but there are other Old Testament passages that provide incredible details about the arrival of Jesus. Some of them predate his arrival by 2,000 years. Check these out. Jesus will come from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. That's about 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Jesus will be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob, Genesis 17, 19, and Numbers 24, 17. Jesus will be born in the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Jesus will be a member of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. Jesus will be from the lineage of King David, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. These are just some explicit details about the arrival of Jesus. He's coming. I'm going to send you a sign. But not only that, he's going to be born here. He's going to be this. He's going to be that. In fact, even over in Isaiah 50 somewhere, it says he's not even going to be attractive physically. He's going to be a normal guy. There will be nothing about him that attracts men to him in his physical appearance. I mean, talk about explicit detail about this baby who came and grew up the savior of the world. There was a group of guys in those days who had been anticipating the arrival of Jesus. They had studied the scriptures. They had seen the sign, saw the sign, and set out to find him. 
They fixed their eyes on a special star in the sky and traveled from faraway lands. They visited the king of Israel to see if he knew where Jesus was. The star led them to the tiny town of Bethlehem. And it was there that they found Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, the savior of the world. They rejoiced over him. They worshiped him. They gave him expensive gifts. Ultimately, they believed the prophecies and the sign about the arrival of Jesus. And they took action. They knew the prophecies. They knew I mean, isn't that incredible to think that they actually knew that he was about to come or had just come? The whole world missed Jesus, and somehow this group of magi knew that he had come or was about to come. They were on to him. They knew, you got to know the scriptures real good. I mean, they were calculating and doing all this stuff, trying to figure it out, went out and traveled far away. You see, they understood that it was a prophesied arrival. And others did as well. It was foretold. It shouldn't have been any surprise when Jesus came. Especially to the nation of Israel. Right there in their own scriptures. It was all illustrated and laid out. And they rejected him. Let's begin to wrap this up. Let's uh, focus on Joseph, the husband of Mary, one more time. In verse 19, we read that when he learned about his fiancée's, his betrothed's pregnancy, he planned to break that ketubah with her and her dad quietly. And in verse 20, we read that before he could follow through with his plan, an angel appeared to him in a dream and explained the situation, basically, and gave him instructions. How did Joseph respond to the angel? Look at verses 24 through 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Joseph submitted to and obeyed the Lord's instructions, God's instructions through the angel. He went on and married Mary. He went through with it. He also waited to consummate his marriage with her until after Jesus was born. And there's nothing in the text that says he was commanded to do that. He may have been, but in any case, he chose to do that because he was an honorable man. He did not want to lie with his wife as she's carrying the very son of God, savior of the world. That had been probably about nine months of waiting to be with his wife in a way that no man I've ever known can get past the honeymoon night. What an honorable man. <laughs> and he gave the baby the name Jesus. He was instructed to do that. Yahshua. And what does God desire from us this morning? What does he want us to do? I believe he wants us to follow Joseph's example. He wants us to submit and obey. Not an angel at night. He's not asking us to marry someone. He's not asking us, certainly not asking us to name our child Jesus. He's asking us to be like Joseph in Joseph's submission to the Lord's instruction. He wants us to submit to and obey the testimony of his holy word. Right here, right now. Jesus arrived. <laughs> and he came as God with a purpose. And his purpose was to save his people from their sins. This was foretold and prophesied. That's what we've studied. Do you believe it? 
oh, it's superstition, it's science fiction, there's no way. Do you believe the testimony of God's word right here in Matthew 1 and everywhere else? Have you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you could be saved from your sins? That's why he came. Do you belong to Christ? Are you one of his people? Guess what? If you have yet to repent and believe in him, you are not yet one of his people. You do not belong to him You must repent, turn away from your life and your self-sufficiency and turn to Christ and put your trust in him. If you have yet to do that, you do not belong to him. Don't be fooled. I like Jesus, I belong to him. No, 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 no. People who like Jesus don't belong to him. They don't. They belong to this world. They belong to the devil and so... As a pastor here, I implore you to submit to the scriptures, obey now. Do not tarry, do not wait, do not try to settle your affairs and then come to Jesus. Do not try to clean yourself up. You can't, doesn't matter how much zest you buy. You're a dirty, filthy sinner and the only one that can save you is Christ. You ain't gonna clean yourself up and then present yourself to God. You wash yourself and, and, and say some Hail Marys and do this stuff and go through these motions and maybe do some kind things. You know what, God, I think I'm ready now. I put 58 cents in the Salvation Basket, Salvation Army Basket. You ain't ready. There's nothing different about you. Nothing you can do. You just come to him as you are and you ask him for mercy. You ask him for grace. You ask him to save you and make you a new person. You turn away from the world and turn to Jesus because he, as the scriptures say, is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one can come to him, to the Father, except through Jesus. You will never, ever see God without Christ. For those of us who who do belong to Jesus, remember that Christmas is about what we've talked about here today. We do not celebrate Saturnalia with the rest of the world. And Christmas isn't, most certainly is not, just about parties and presents. I mean, those things are fun and great. Christmas is about Jesus. It's about the arrival of Messiah. He is the reason for this season. We celebrate Christ Mass. May we honor and glorify Jesus in all we do in the coming weeks. Amen.